they could be right. They could be wrong. Like I've had clients told that their baby had heart conditions and then they went and got a second opinion and they didn't see anything, you know? So it's like, you just, um, it's a tricky, it's really is tricky waters though, because I think that there is a grief and a loss of what they wanted that baby and that family to be like. And sometimes their partners don't even know how to hold space for that. There's sometimes there's shame, especially, you know, cross-culturally, there's a lot of shame around, you know, children who require additional support and who will need lifelong care into adulthood, you know, and it's a lot for both parents. And I've seen relationships end because of it, you know, where sometimes the man just wants to become a financial provider, but cannot emotionally or physically hold the space anymore. So that is that is not something I'm really qualified, I would say, to, you know, to really support and, and educate on. But I have been a part of it and have always done my my best. And I really just become a a neutral third party because sometimes family does not step up. Jacob Egbert. Hi, I'm Kelly Brogan, MD. I'm Christine Loria, international midwife. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN podcast. My guest on today's show is Adula. Her name's Ayla Cuenca, and she and I connected um, basically as like an energy exchange on Instagram. Um, she focuses a lot on pregnancy loss, but also then I, as I was kind of researching what she is really all about, you know, when you say, who are you, what, what Ayla might answer with instead of her name and her location and her profession would be um, that she approaches birth work and educating other doulas, but also, um, helping clients who experience loss and it's not just the loss of a baby it's also the loss of autonomy in the hospital system and if you're a listener of this show you know that this is a principle that's very near and dear but the way that Ayla describes it is a little different from what I've heard a lot of other people in this space talk about and I wanted to bring her on to share some of her insights through the lens of <clears throat> the conditioning that most women experience in their lives, which could even be in their intimate partnerships, you know, not wanting to have sex tonight, but your partner wants to have sex. So in order to just keep the peace, you have sex, right? It may not feel good. It might even hurt, but you don't want to say no, because then they might get mad at you or frustrated, or you might get the silent treatment, whatever. So. The conditioning that many women, including the women in my life, have shared with me around just kind of appeasing society in order to keep the peace comes out in in somewhat destructive ways in the birth process. And when we have something on the inside that's saying no, but then we ultimately go along with it, there's this sense of self-betrayal that Ayla is very deft in in how she applies a language and support for people who experience this. And this, this really does harken back to the reality that even if you have an uncomplicated, all natural, unmedicated, whatever you want to call it, birth in the hospital, oftentimes 
you know, many women who come into my practice, they don't feel like things went great. You know, yes, healthy mom, healthy baby. But there's that sense of self-betrayal that is is very traumatizing. Um, and it's an extension of of how we have treated women for most of their lives from the moment that they get their period. And we want to squelch the magic by giving them birth control, scaring them um, into uh, avoiding sex through, you know, health classes that do far more fear-mongering around sex and intimacy and reproductive health um, than it does actually educating and empowering people, specifically women, around some of these topics. So we can call it gaslighting, we can call it whatever we want, but at the end of the day, many, many women in our society are oftentimes not being guided by their intuitive sense of what's right or wrong for them. They're being guided by some degree of appeasement in, again, their their intimate relationships, in their friendships, and especially when they show up to the hospital in labor and they feel compelled to just go along with the program. What results from that? Like, Like what type of society are we dreaming into existence when women don't even have the incentive or even the compulsion, the support to take control of their decisions and act in such a way that after the fact, regardless of the outcome, the outcome is often out of our control, but after the fact, they feel like they just continue to say or do the things in order to get the support or attention that they need or even deserve in an experience as sacred as childbirth. So you're going to love this conversation. We do have one sponsor for this episode, as with many episodes, and um, Immune Intel has continued to be an incredible supporter. I've cut ties with a lot of the other sponsors because I want to minimize ad reads for you. But this product, active hexose correlated compound um, from the medicine, Mimi Linquist and Chase Ramey's um, company, is so beneficial and impactful to so many women who have any degree of immune dysregulation. You know, specifically if you have persistent HPV, if you have normal ab- abnormal PAPs, if you've gotten tons of antibiotics and vaccines in your life and your gut's out of order from birth control, all of those things. Maybe you have an MTHFR um, gene mutation. Um, all of these things lead to immune dysregulation, which can lead to precancerous and cancerous lesions. It can lead to just overall bad health and, 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 and poor, whatever the opposite of well-being is. So um, when I found this product, I looked at the research and AHCC has been very well researched, especially in animals. And now there's more and more studies coming out in human trials um, where they show that you're getting in a boosting in the amount of immune cells and how those immune cells are connecting with one another. And um, they've even looked at persistent HPV for over two years when women start taking this in a slightly higher dose, which by the way, they've given rats their body weight in this and they haven't seen any toxicity. So you can almost not go wrong by taking this in higher dose if you have some specific um, impairment related to immune dysregulation. So you're going to see when you take a course of this, of this supplement, sort of an acute 
uh, downregulation of the inflammation in your body. You're going to get an improvement in your immune um, function. You may see a squelching of the inf inflammation pertaining to an autoimmune condition, or maybe even if you've got early Hashimoto's, you might see that some of the thyroid dysfunction starts to resolve. Uh, they've studied HCC in liver disease, in um, treatment-resistant epilepsy. There's a variety of indications for this specific compound. And I'm finding that the clients who I who come to me who have endometriosis, who have um, something related to cervical health, maybe recurrent infections, maybe GI issues, that this is actually a part, a mainstay uh, of the regimen that I recommend as an acute treatment, right? This is not, you're not going to be on this for the rest of your life. This is to squelch the fire. And then we're going to be putting in the pieces, uh, the, put, the putting the pieces into play in order to make sure that you're, um, that you don't have to really worry about a lot of these, you know, dysregulatory immune um, issues. So if you want to try this product out, I can't recommend it enough. Go to the medicine without the E at the end. That's T-H-E-M-E-D-I-C-I-N.com slash products. Use code BELOVED10. You'll save 10% on your bottle of Immune Intel. And I trust in this product so much that our new program, Clear and Free, that Mimi and I put together, we're including a bottle, a your first bottle free, which is about a $90 value when you enroll in Clear and Free. So... If you want information about that program, which is really focused on the immune system, vaccines, um, the gut, uh, and all of the lifestyle modifications that play into abnormal PAPs and these persistent HPV signals that your doctor's calling you about, you know, worried about, um, go to clearhpv.com. We are on, you know, doing an ongoing en enrollment process. So um, there's really not a, a better time um, than now to enroll. So clearhpv.com if you want to take advantage of that. And Immune Intel, thank you for continuing to support this very, very uh, cumbersome process of having a top OBGYN and birth-related podcast. All right, without further ado, I know you're going to love this conversation with Ayla. Um, if you want to find out more information about Ayla, she has a, a couple ways uh, in which you can do that. If you want to save 15% on a one-on-one -on -one session with her, go to AylaCuenca.com. I'll put everything in the podcast description and the show notes, which we are bringing back just because of Google SEO optimization. <laughs> so we're doing, we're going to continue to do the work to have show notes for every episode. Um, she has, uh, Ayla has classes and trainings available at, at uncoveringbirth.com and you can follow her on Instagram, Ayla underscore Cuenca underscore birth. There's a lot of references from this show. We will include all of that in the podcast description and the show notes. Guys, you're going to love this one. Please enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Ayla Cuenca. <laughs> On, on free birth? Well, I've always believed and known. I have an anthropology background. That's what I studied in, in college and always looking at family systems and birth, of course, was always a part of that, that study and that conversation. And women were never alone. 
giving birth. There were these isolated instances where there were tribes in like Western Africa, for example, where a woman was called to do what's um, what they would say is the dance with the dead. And they would go out into the bush alone and they would birth and then they would come back transformed. They would go into their own death and, re- and be reborn and come back into the community. So there were these isolated events where women were intentionally birthing alone for the sake of a ritual. However, across the board, cross-culturally, women were always birthing with someone. And so I've come to perceive free birth as a reaction to a system or as a reaction to authority or as reaction to the belief that we are unsupported as a woman in this world. And so we take on this sometimes like um, cavalier and sometimes unsafe um, role and dynamic, you know, Um, yeah. But if you're birthing and it happens quickly or it happens without your team, it was meant to be that way, you know, and it's fine. Right. Right. Yeah. I I do think that there's a fine line there between um, a like reclamation of sovereignty by pushing everybody out of the space and doing this completely on your own and doing that in a way that you're like, I am very called to do this for X, Y, or Z reason versus I can't bear to have somebody who's part of the institution of birth at my birth and therefore I'm just going to do this alone. Um, those feel like very, very different things. And there's there's subtle differences, I think, in, in why people choose to go the free birth route. And I personally, there's something compelling to me. Like I might even have a free birth, but I'm also like a doctor. <laughs> so it's like, it's almost like, well, I could, I would be the one to save the day anyways. So why not just do it? So it's still coming from a place of, of like, sort of what if, you know, um, as opposed to, hey, I am determined to have this experience completely alone out in the woods. And whatever the outcome is, you know, the outcome will be like, it's, uh, there is some some real power there. But I, I agree with you, I, I get the sense that many people are going and finding the free birth community because they had something traumatic happen. And and that to me is not a reflection that free birth is the option. It's that we are not doing a good job of taking care of people when they experience something traumatic at the hands of people who look like me, who dress like me, who talk like me. Um, and I'm, I'm speaking generally here, OBGYNs is what I'm speaking to, but also a lot of midwives. So, um, you know, you live in a state that's not all that friendly to, um, to home birth. And I work with a lot of midwives in the state of Florida, but you're in Miami, which is, kind of especially tricky, right? Because so many women elect to have C-sections in Southern Florida because they're hoping to like preserve their pelvic floor. They have all various reasons and to each their own. But many of the midwives are very restricted in Miami as to what they can and can't do. So maybe tell me a little bit about uh, what compelled you to to switch from the, the model of um, perhaps being I don't know. Were you planning to have a hospital birth at first and then you switched to home birth at the um, last second? I was, Tell me about that. I was being conscious of what my partner's needs were at the time, which is to really see through prenatal care in the more conventional setting because he really felt like that was the best option. And and I, I knew that it wasn't for me. And so we, you know, do, you know your partner, right? And so at the time I was like, we, I will go to these visits so that he can experience it and kind of get it out of his system. <laughs> and he did. After a few appointments, um, yeah, he yeah. felt like I wasn't being, like I was being mistreated or 
um, I wasn't being given the attention that it required, you know, for a first time mom. He's like, this is really special. And why are we being treated like a number? You know, that's how he felt. So that's all he needed in order to feel like he was open to midwifery care. And then we went through a series of interviewing various midwives until like, it was like Goldilocks, you know. And so um, finally, like around six months, I found the one that I, I resonated with the most. Um, but then um, there were some like sticky points between us as far as what she was like allowing. And I was very empathic as far as like her just needing to be cautious around her license, you know. And so I was like, this might not be a good yeah. match and I don't want to put you in a compromising situation. And like, it's your livelihood. So then I found a different midwife kind of like at the 25th hour who was like, had all these waivers and releases and was like, I've got my stuff covered and I'm really here to just observe you in whatever capacity you want me to. And that was where I found like my sweet spot. So that's how we ended up doing the home birth. Yeah. And I'd say it was, um, but she was under the gun, you know, unfortunately, because in Florida, they have a really strict policy that if you're 10 days past your estimated due date, then they have, they're obliged to transfer you to hospital care at that point. So, you know, 10 days, that's yeah. it. They give you 10 days. And if you haven't given birth, then you're not yeah. going to have a midwife at home, at least if exactly. they're practicing exactly. by the rules. You know, so and so I, you know, the morning of day 10, I was like, you know, doing you know, barefoot walking. I was like doing nipple stimulation, breast pumping, I, you know, everything I could think of. And I finally, by 7 PM had started some mild contractions. I texted her and she said, all right, we're in our window you know, it's begun. And so even if five days pass, <laughs> we're in the window and we're okay. And like, everything was fine. So that, um, that felt good to me, you know, wow. that I was able to make that happen. And she didn't come for another three days, two and a half days, but it was the way it was supposed to be. What if you had been in labor on day nine, like nine days after your due date? So you're like 41 weeks and through whatever, two yeah. days or something, right? and you're in labor, is your midwife compelled to still transfer you to the hospital? Or if you've like started labor, you, you can started, go beyond you can that. Go beyond. So on day 10, I started. So she said, you know, even if baby's born next week, we're still good because you started and we're, you're still under my care and we're in the window of labor now. So there's like some funny thing there. Yeah. And so, yeah, she was, I went into labor, you know, Friday and she was born Sunday afternoon, evening. Yeah. So you're, so so you're you are somebody now who's given birth. You've also um, you've also gone through a, a miscarriage, which we'll talk about um, in a little bit. But um, in your support of women who want to have babies um, in South Florida, right? Um, your story of not wanting to be institutionalized for your pregnancy and birth experience must come from somewhere. Like, where does this drive to not be in the system, so to speak? Where does that come from for you? And how do you help to impress that upon people that that's a big part of your practice, empowering people to act in what I might call sovereignty? I'm not exactly sure what that word means anymore because it's thrown around so cavalier in such a casual way. But tell me what that means to you, you know, to not be in the, in the institution, this cult of medicine as a part of your birth so experience. So I grew up in a Jewish household and I grew up very cognizant of the Holocaust and all of these related stories, you know, and read Viktor Frankl when I was in middle school. And I really was like, there are systems out there 
that feed energetically off of other people being controlled. And there are people who believe that they have the mm -hmm. right answer and that the people that they're overpowering don't know the right answer for themselves. And so that was just like my background. And then I, you know, my mother's a naturopathic practitioner. My stepfather's an oriental, uh, uh, he's a, <laughs> he's an MD turned oriental medicine doctor. And so he left the system and it was like, I just remember being in elementary and middle school and it was like getting waivers written so that I didn't have to get the vaccines to go start the school year. And just always having these like things done to avoid participating in something that we didn't believe in, you know, and that's just where I come from. Mm. And I was like, there's always an option. And I didn't necessarily like yeah. hate the system. And like, I never felt like I had to take it down. I just was like, this is not for me. And that's it. Like, you like blue, I like red. And here we go. You know, like whatever. No, I, no, no political pun intended. I just mean like, we we can like different things and, and believe in different things and it doesn't matter, you know? And I think also growing up in a religion that is like, you know, not so mainstream in the ways that, you know, perhaps other religions are, you know, and there's a story that there's a weight in this religion that's carried about like, you know, breaking free from. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that's where it comes from. I feel that that's where it comes from. Do you feel like the institution of marriage fits into that category for um, you? I think that that really depends on the woman's lineage and the belief system of the women in her lineage, right? Mm. Did women in her lineage feel that they had to pay a price to get taken care of? Did they feel that there, there was a tariff? Mm for being a wife and enduring something, right? Was the price their freedom and was marriage the prison? So it all depends on the story that the women in that lineage were telling themselves. You know, if I'm not here receiving abuse, then I'm out in the cold with no food. So the price for, for being taken care mm. of and for being a wife is my freedom. And so, no, I don't think, I don't believe, I actually, I actually believe that the institution of marriage is quite liberating, depending on how the two people come into it and dep depending on the healing that both people have done, but depending on the, the belief system passed down in those lineages, I feel that it can be, you know, imprisonment. Yeah. 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 Um, I want to talk about betrayal. Uh, you and I just chatted on the phone about this and you were on Kelly Brogan's podcast and you guys were really riffing, I think, in a really beautiful way on this. But the, uh, you know, we were just talking about free birth and how so many women at some point in their labor process or whatever. I mean, I just had something like this happen with a client where they decided to transfer to the hospital. It, it, and it, it seemed, um, you know, that at eight or eight and a half centimeters, it seemed like a little bit of a I don't want to say irresponsible, but it seemed a little bit unreasonable based on everything that, that, that this person, this couple had shared with me about their determination to stay out of mm. the system and this and that. But on the other hand, there was a lot of pressure from the family and whatnot that I realized in retrospect may have prompted this couple to not, or at least the woman giving birth, to not be fully dedicated right. to this task, or, or at least to have this little inkling of... I don't know, I'm gonna, I'm doing it wrong or something. So let's talk a little bit about 
betrayal to ourselves in how we show up in our relationships, how we show up in birth, how we maybe even show up in death. Um, and, and, and what you, how you frame this for the clientele mm. that you support um, as a means of a really kind of, I, I feel like it's an empowering message. So I want to give people that caveat that this is not a shame blame kind of language. This is really meant to, to, to inspire you to really, I don't know, go inward and to f find out what you stand for. But go ahead, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to you to, to elaborate. Yeah. The way mm -hmm. I've come to perceive self-betrayal, let's call it self-betrayal when it comes to the woman and her experience. And the way that I've come to perceive that is it's simply a survival mechanism. So somewhere along the way, we learned at whatever age it was, and I'll speak about little girls for now, um, but this is applicable to, to men. Um, somewhere along the way, we learned that we had to self-betray in order to maintain connection or in order to maintain safety or like for every, for, you know, for everyone in the family to kind of keep the peace, right? There's all different reasons that we would self-betray something that we wanted or an expression. Uh, we would suppress it. And so I can give an example, right, of a client I was just working with um, this morning, actually. And in order for her to main, maintain physical safety in her family dynamic, she had to be the mother. She had to sacrifice her role as an adolescent and be the mother who was basically going around putting out fires with all of the volatile people in her family. And so that happened around like age 14. And that was where this splinter happened, where she had to sacrifice, um, you know, being an adolescent, she had to sacrifice time with friends, her studies, in order to make sure that everyone in the family was kind of at bay in their temperament. And so what happened in her birth experience later on was that she paired up with what I would consider to be kind of volatile practitioners and a volatile situation. And she then started paying the price, you know, the tariff, I would call it, and not doing what she really wanted, which was having this natural home birth experience. It was about pleasing the people in the family to avoid the, 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 la the feedback and to avoid the lashing out, right? So this is just one example of how we just recreate that dynamic our identity is so wrapped up in that that we just start to recreate it everywhere so that we maintain a sense of order in our right. lives. Um, you know, if I didn't do this, you know, would mom give me silent treatment, right? If I wasn't a good girl, you know, was I scolded? If I didn't kiss my, you know, relatives when they came over and hug them, you know, if I didn't, if I didn't give my body over to relatives when they came over um, in this really seemingly innocuous sense, you know, was I punished by my parents or my caregivers for being rude, you know? And so then women get into these dynamics where they will use their body to maintain connection, even if they don't really want to. And then later they're like, I don't understand why I feel violated or I feel empty. You know, um, I didn't want that vaginal exam, but I didn't say anything because I didn't want to be a bother. And that's kind of like what I have to do because those are their rules. You know, they never think, what are, what are my rules? You know, what are my needs? And so I, I see this just kind of come up in every possible hmm. way in the birth process. It's very rare that a woman, especially a first-time mother, has already established what her needs are and her rules are. And I'm not talking about in a reactionary sense, right? A woman who has sustained physical abuse and now she's like on the other side of the spectrum, like sending everyone to hell and is angry. And you know what I mean? Like I'm talking about someone who 
who just hasn't really asked themselves, what do I want, you know? And so they'll get into dynamics with practitioners they're not really connected to. They will appease their family members who want them to have a certain type of birth. Um, they might start out feeling really empowered. And then when it comes, you know, we get to that pressure point that, that, you know, the diamond really starts to get that pressure, like they change plans and it can seem like a 180, like, where did this come from? But it was actually there all along. And they just really wanted this thing, like consciously, they really wanted this other thing, but unconsciously their entire blueprint is to recreate that dynamic from their childhood, Mm. you know? And so it's, um, and that's what we can access in a birth processing session, right? Where it's like, I don't understand why that transfer happened, you know? And yeah, there are medical reasons, but I also feel that medical reasons, right? If we look at the cascade of events for a C-section where the woman was in good health, the pregnancy was, you know, um, viable, perfect. You know, some women have said it was a perfect pregnancy, right? And then I don't know how I ended up in an emergency C-section, um, you know, but maybe she she acquiesced to a, an induction that wasn't, you know, she didn't get a second opinion on the induction. She just went for it the first time and said, you know, I, my hands are tied. Okay. And then she gets the induction, right? Inductions are super intense for the most part. So it makes sense a woman would want yeah. to kind of equalize with an epidural. And then, you know, maybe the baby didn't react well to what's in the epidural. So we see, you know, distress in heart tones and, you know, a C-section is called, you know, maybe it happens within the hour of being called because they just want to prevent anything from getting worse, but it's called an emergency C-section. And then the woman says, I don't understand how this happened. And so this is when I say, you co-created this, right? Is that possible? Could you get behind the possibility that you co-created this so that you felt support, that you actually got that support and the attention and the needs met that you weren't giving yourself before because everybody came in all hands on deck. How, what belief does this support? Um, And so about, you know, some of the birth processing really is about accountability because I think women get really caught in that, in that victim consciousness. And then they start finding someone to blame, right? I'm going to get a refund from so-and-so I'm going to sue so-and-so I'm going to do this. And it's like, well, let's look at what role you played in this, because this is not just an exterior. This is not your body was working. Everything was working. Yeah. Yeah. This is not yeah. a cord prolapse, right? This Ooh. is not one of those things. So how, you know, and this is, there's right. a lot of women who say that they are really in touch with this, with manifestation and spirituality and being connected. And they're doing all these things during the pregnancy And then it's almost like there is this big disconnect or this like severing that happens around the birth itself. And so there's bypassing. There's there's a big amount of bypassing that can happen in this process for many women. It's all, it's all well and good, you know, to do some of the work, but there's, there's a lot of deep work to do that is really uncomfortable and we often won't do it when we're pregnant. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I want to put myself in the shoes of somebody who, um, naturally, Ayla, uh, I agree with you completely, but it is a lot harder for me to uh, impress these types of things on people because I've never had a baby. My wife and I had two very, very easy pregnancy childbirth experiences. I will also say that my wife has developed through our intimate relationship. We met when we were 15. So she's very, very good at telling me no. So she's actually had the time to practice connecting 
despite betraying, you know, in, w without betraying herself. And I think that that goes a long way, even in birth. But, but frankly, my wife would also ask, like, am I allowed to decline that thing or this thing or this thing before we had our first birth, which was in the hospital? And I was like, baby, you can say no to absolutely everything. You can say no to that room, to that doctor, to that nurse, to that IV, like every single thing is your con in your control, which reflects that there's still in her life has been a, a the pleasantries that women, I think, are conditioned to use in order to just get through school and to get home after the bar at night. And, you know, she was a bartender for years, like being in a bar situation where men are drunk, like sometimes you just have to like, oh, you know, like kind of chuckle it off, whatever yeah. advances are being made. Yeah. So I'm wondering um, when people listen to this, I think there many people are immediately because of the archetype that they currently embody, they're immediately going to push back and they're going to say, how dare you? So what do you say to that? I mean, like, how do we work? How do we make this practical for people? Um, like as soon as people are, are, are in, they're in, like they're going to call you up. They're going to go to your website. They're going to do all this to help you, you know, process. But what you just said there, I could, I could sense, yeah. I'm being devil's advocate here. I could sense can be a little bit triggering for people. So what do you say to those people who feel triggered by this, this, what I see again is empowering, but they may see as dismissing of their experience. Like, how dare you say it was, I was a part of this. I co-created this C-section. How yeah. dare you? Yeah. And so I will, advocate. I will preface this by <laughs> saying there is a very small percentage of situations that you could not have prevented right like there there that that does exist and you can give me more accurately the the c-section rates that happen because of true emergencies in the way that you would classify it as a medical professional not the way that it's generally classified right not 40 percent not 40 percent of c-sections right. for sure yeah and and let me also add to that ayla that we have maybe the clientele who's going to the hospital to be served and we have the doctors that are doing the c-sections and nobody is going to say that they're the ones responsible for the 40 percent c-section rate in our country so if they're if the surgeons aren't responsible and the clientele is getting the surgery and consenting to it aren't responsible then we have this kind of mismatch in what the reality is and what people are deluding themselves into believing so who's responsible for this C-section rate? Is it a bunch of bad doctors? Is it a bunch of irresponsible pregnant women? Like, of course, neither of those answers is true, but nobody wants to actually look at the reality that this was consensual between surgeon and patient every step of the way to a 40%, nearly 40% national average whereby babies are being removed. I mean, through the okay, so, yeah, I, I want to go back to your original <laughs> question, but it's like you you know, as a doctor, you have to know, right? You know that there is a very strong likelihood that what is in a lot of these procedures can impact the baby's capacity to stay in labor, right? You know that. So they know that. And even though they always say, and I know I've heard medical staff say this, we would never do anything here to endanger you. That's true. <laughs> but also, they also know that these procedures carry risk. And they can, you can have a really quick 180, uh, depending on how this interacts with the woman or how it interacts with the baby. So yes, that responsibility, like there's no way to get around it. And the woman is consenting. I mean, she's signing paperwork. She's not speaking up. She's consenting to the induction. She could have gotten a second opinion or a third opinion from a different doctor and she didn't. So yeah, like everyone is participating in that 40%. Like I can't, yeah. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. anyway, <laughs> um, anyway. And so, okay. 
what would I say? I would ask women if there's like some um, resistance around what I've said or around the invitation to take accountability for these things, um, you know, for these transfers, um, emergency C-sections, you know, things taking a turn. If there's resistance around that, I would ask you, you know, are you content? You know, do you feel resentment in your life towards the people around you? toward your partner, toward your family, toward your children, toward yourself? Um, you know, do you have blocks <laughs> around intimacy? Um, you know, like I would ask questions and most of the time people are going to say, yeah, like I, you know, I get exhausted after spending time with people. People want a lot from me. Uh, you know, I hold everything together. You know, my husband is incompetent in this way or, you know, or women say, I'm totally happy. Everything's fine. I love my family. I love my kids. Like there's nothing wrong. Like this is just BS. Like I always ask for what I want, you know? Um, and I'm like, okay, you know, I, I don't find an entry point there. You know, someone doesn't want to talk. They don't want to talk. But often women will say, yeah, I do feel like I bury, I carry the burden. Yeah, I do feel like I'm not doing the things I want in my life. Yeah, I've made my bed. Now I have to lie in it kind of attitude. And so that like, what kind of way is that to live? So what that's indicating to me is that you are not actually expressing your needs and they are not being met. So yeah, everything might look okay on the outside or, you know, feel like it's in place. But if you're having these feelings, then these sensations, then everything is not okay. And you are not meeting your needs and you don't even really know what they are, you know? Um, so it's not like, you know, I need you to take, I don't need you to do anything. I'm just inviting you to look at the possibility that you co-created this experience, right? Because you've been working with the same OB yeah. since high school and they were your gynecologist and they're so great. And how could you ever go with somebody else? They know your body, you know? You don't want to don't disappoint want to your doctor. That's why we lie about our diet and our smoking right. and our alcohol. Oh, maybe yeah. a glass of egg. And like, how good does it feel? Right. No, exactly. Them. And how good does it feel when they're like, <laughs> yeah. oh, good job. You're doing great. Right? It's like, yeah. here's the, here's yeah. the cookie. You gold star. You know? yeah. And so there is, there is a part of, there's so many parts in each woman and in each man. We're made up of parts. And all these parts are different instances throughout our life where something happened and we got information, right? Uh, we're doing the talent show at age 12 and we trip and fall on stage and people laugh. And so there's that part that believes I can't dance, I can't perform, or I will be cast out. I am not good at that. So that part lives mm. there, right? And so now when it comes time to do anything in front mm. of anyone, the part is like, hey, don't do it you're going to get laughed at. Right. And you're like, Oh, okay. I'm just, I'm not, I just don't like public speak. I'm just not good. You know, like that's just not me. Right. And we have all these stories why it's not us. Yeah. So there's many parts stories. always at play. Yeah. And so what's the part of you that has parentified, you know, this, either your midwife or your doctor, and you just want them to approve of you and say, you're doing a really good job. Even if, you know, you have to lie about it. Yeah. You know, it, it strikes me that this consent thing, so something that we talk about in the Born Free community, um, for those who are listening who haven't checked that out, the bornfreemethod.com covers quite a bit of this type of stuff. Although, Ayla, I want to bring in some of your wisdom into our community that meets weekly because, you know, what I've been, I've been approaching this personal accountability piece from, from one lens, which, or from one 
dominant lens, which is, listen, at the end of the day, you don't have to believe Ayla. You don't have to believe me. You don't have to believe in this whole, you know, you, you know, informed consent thing. You can just go along with the flow. But at the end of the day, if something bad were to happen to you or your baby, nobody's going to then sweep in, swoop in and take care of an injured baby. So the vaccine conversation is a perfect and, you know, uh, allegory for this, this, the comp, the complexities of decision-making. You can get the vaccines for your kid. Day one of life, get a circumcision, get the hepatitis B, make sure they gave, you know, get two doses of vitamin K, do all of the things. But if something ends up happening to the baby, the doctors and, and nurses and whatnot who were, who you were appeasing and, you know, in, in, in just nodding along and going with the flow, they're not going to come in and say, oh my God, here's that one in 10,000 baby who's injured. We need to do everything we can to help you. That's going to fall on you. So ultimately, at the end of the day, there's two paths. If there is an inevitable small percentage, fortunately, of bad things happening in childbirth, especially women dying, babies dying, it happens once in a while, but it is still an, an absolute low risk. But if that were to happen to you and it's completely unpreventable, unpredictable, uncontrollable, it's going to feel a lot different to you going forward. If you had made a decision that was in alignment with what you wanted, versus making a decision that wasn't in alignment, you were just nodding your head and going along, and both of those paths lead to this bad outcome, it's gonna feel a lot different for you to know that you actually made decisions that were not just appeasing to other people, but they were very much in alignment with who you are and what, how you wanna show up, you know, vaccines or C-sections or otherwise. This really comes um, down to the codependency that lives in yeah. so many of us from having unresolved um, trauma that ensued yeah. with our caregivers, whether people want to say they had the perfect childhood or not, yeah. and there's nothing going on. Once you start to dig in a little bit, there was always something that felt like I had to self-betray a little bit to get the connection, whether it was with friends or with mom or with dad or with both or with a sibling, there's always some element of that there. And so these codependent dynamics come up in birth because you say, well, they're going to take care like, you know, like, let me do what they want so that they're pleased with me. And then we're disappointed when there's no follow through afterwards, right? When there is a reaction right. to the hepatitis right. B vaccine and everyone's just saying, you signed the thing. I don't know what to tell you. Like, we can't tell you it's because, you know, that there's brain swelling because of the, the vaccine, but we don't, you know, this is what you chose to do. And so if you have a decision yeah. in front of you, you close your eyes and you say, okay, what does it feel like in my body? And women, we're meant to do this. We're meant to feel it in our body. I think men are, are more wired to process things and strategic, strategically resolve right in the brain. And so, you know, I'm not saying this method will work for men necessarily, but when the woman is tapped into her body and she feels, says, okay, if I do it because they're saying it and there's a bad reaction, how will I feel in the future? Okay. That doesn't feel good. If I don't do it because I don't really want to and, you know, everything is fine with my baby, how will I feel? And if I don't do it and the baby does get the hepatitis B vaccine because I never vaccinated them, how does that feel? Okay. I'm like the most okay with that, you know? I'm the, all of it doesn't feel quite, you know, settling for me, but that I feel the most okay with that. So there's ways that it's not going to be super, super clear, but you can kind of gauge and you start to give yourself that power. And the, the issue is that women don't give themselves the spaciousness. It's almost like I have to decide now. And it's like, why don't you just give yourself a week, feel it in your body, you know, and then make yeah. a decision. I just don't think women can hold uncertainty in their bodies because we're so, we just want to get resolution so quick because it's really 
hard to know. That's another trauma response, right? So we want to resolve it as quickly as possible. And sometimes we make these knee-jerk decisions and then we feel deep regret, you know, and where's the doctor later on? They're not Mm. there. It's not their job. They're not going home with you, you know? You know, it occurs to me that this sort of um, appeasing, this codependency, right? Like I don't want to disappoint the doctors. That actually kind of starts in our most intimate spaces. It, it starts in our bedrooms. You know, if I were to roll over onto my wife and want to have sex, she's not, there's no foreplay. There's no, there's nothing there's there no to opening. get her going. There's and no I'm like, yeah, I haven't been invited in, but she may still feel compelled to open her legs and do the thing, like have sex in whatever way I wish to do it, even if she's not really feeling like it's a hell yes. Um, if that is what's happening in our most intimate spaces, how are we supposed to suddenly snap out of that, right, in the hospital? So it kind of seems like it starts, like, it starts, like, when you get a glimmer of having kids, like, that whole practicing, you know, honoring yourself and not betraying yourself could start right now if you're listening. Like, um, even if a friend calls you up and says, hey, do you want to go to the movie? You can just be like, no, thank you. Like, I, I, I'm not I'm not into the going to the movie now, but instead we find some reason to not go because we don't want to hurt right. our friend's feelings and we might and lie. to reject us. So this is, yeah, we just lie like, oh, you know, I'm uh, I got a uh, I, I got to interview Ayla today. I, I can't go to the movies this morning or something, you know. Um, so uh, this betrayal thing is really, really um, important. And I know you do a lot of pregnancy loss and miscarriage support, and I kind of get the sense that almost all of this is going to be, re- you know, re- relatable, you know, to one another. It's almost the, the, the trauma that, that results from self-betrayal, and you can correct my language if, if you wish, um, results in some deep unpacking and uh, re, I don't know if reprogramming is the word I want to use, but unpacking and um, sort of a resolution process. So maybe you can talk about that, not through the lens of a, of a bad pregnancy outcome, although you're welcome to go into that direction if you want, but I'd love to hear about um, what you would do differently if you could, if you were the president of obstetrics and gynecology and you said, this is how we're going to handle miscarriage going forward. Wow. Um, what are we doing? What are we doing wrong? How could we do it better? I guess is what so I'm trying to say. So what happens like, you know, when I've been part of um, loss at birth in the birth, in the birth space, for example, um, you know, I was working with one of my clients um, out of state and she lost her twins at birth. They were born live and then there were some complications and they both passed away within 48 hours after. And there was no one, there was no like doula there, right? There was no third party that was holding the space for her to grieve. And there was no, you know, there was, Mm. there was a keepsake box and there was opportunity to take a photo and, um, you know, there was some time spent one-on-one and then that was kind of it. That was like what she got. And then she went home and then there was no follow-up. There was no um, center or female individual that she could follow up with after, you know, to continue to process and make sense and say, Hey, my body's feeling this way. Hey, my milk has come in. Hey, uh, you know, what do I do here? I'm cramping or I'm passing a clot. It's like, you can call the OB and then you can go see them and you get kind of like a clinical um, experience about the loss, but like, where is the space for the grief to start to move? Right. You know, grief is like a river. It's like 
Sometimes it becomes really big and it overflows on the banks and sometimes it dries up and it, we can never know when it's going to go through those ebbs and flows. And right. so I would say there is no physical space holding available for you know loss, whether it's in the beginning of the pregnancy or at the end or during whatever. And there's also no like energetic or emotional space holding available. It's like go online and look for groups or you know, talk to a therapist, but therapists, you know, uh, CBTs and different types, AO psychiatrists, they don't have training in birth. Like they can maybe work with the concept of grief, but they also don't understand birth itself typically. And so they can't walk through, you know, when the client says I got the Pitocin, there's no sensitivity around, you know, what that really means for the body and the psyche to get, you know, artificial oxytocin like they don't you know they might not understand that mm -hmm. so there's so many dimensions of it so it's like there has to be someone that can hold space for grief hold physical space and say like you know let's get this let's get you to eat this this might feel really good and warming and grounding oh you know so i would say if i was the the, the leader in making some decisions about how to recreate the the space you know how to reimagine the space Mm. I would say that there has to be um, an opportunity for every woman who's experienced this loss to also be given the chance to grieve things that she's lost along the way in her life. Because what these miscarriages do, yes, there's deep disappointment around not growing the family, right? But there's what it does is it peels back grief that was already there from other things in, in our experience in this human body, you know? And so a lot of women start to recount sexual abuse experiences from childhood, right? Grieving, grieving the, mm. the loss of an adolescence that they never had, you know? And so that's what's coming up. It's even deeper than just the loss of the baby. Um, and so how do we have someone qualified to hold space for that and walk her through the reclamation? Okay, you know, that little girl is no longer there in that room at age eight, you know, she, you know let's bring her in, right? And so sometimes these losses can actually be an amazing opportunity to reclaim parts of ourselves that are still living in the past stuck in a loop, right? The body doesn't know time chronologically like our brain does. The body remembers touch and violation and pleasure as if it's happening, as if it happened yesterday or it's happening right now. The body doesn't know like this happened 30 years ago. The brain's the one telling the body that it happened 30 years ago. So. We need people with that type of sensitivity to hold space for loss. Otherwise, what women do is they yeah. just stuff it down and then they start putting a time clock on themselves saying, it's been three months, I should get over it. It's been a year, like I should get over it. Why am I not over it? Why do I still feel anxious? Why, do, why have I become agoraphobic? You know, all of these questions. And it's like, it's not about just the, the pregnancy loss. And that's what we don't see when it comes to miscarriage, even abortion. People don't want to acknowledge abortion as a deep loss and grief. They think, oh, you chose to do it or you had to do it because it was an ectopic pregnancy. You had to do it. So like you had to do it. So what's the whole song and dance about? You know, get over it. <laughs> like, Yeah. What's the so, big deal? Get over so it. There is yeah. no space holding yeah. for abortion um, either. And a lot of people don't understand that that is often not like if the woman chooses a pregnancy, she's out in the cold, right? And whatever that means to her. And so people don't understand. It feels like it's not a choice, you know? And even the women who say, I chose it. I took the pill at home with my friends. We watched Netflix. 
you know, smoked a little weed and went to bed. It's like all good. And I'm like, what's behind your belief system where you don't feel that you're worthy of being a mother and you have to just like be blase about this? You know, is there a belief you have that like you're not worthy of this role? What are you so afraid of? What's your relationship with your own mother like that you are like allergic to the possibility that you could guide someone through this earth? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Have you worked with people who have had like stillbirths or I don't know, maybe not a dead baby at the end of their birth, but they have a, a neurologically impaired baby and they're struggling with, did I make the right decision around, you know, not agreeing to the C-section that was being recommended. And then the baby had this injury and they think I was, I should have had a C-section sooner. Like, do you talk to, to women as well that are going through some of those types of of losses because they're still losses yes. because you're 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 dreaming up having this kid that's completely functional just like everybody else on instagram and there's nobody out there willing to really let them lean into mm. them right like hey you've got a child that now has some disabilities what do you say about that i feel like that's that is even really trickier tricky water. because what i have seen is that everyone is there and available for the pregnancy, for the birth, and then no one knows the support system or like yeah. friends and family don't know what to do and they fall silent when the baby comes out in a different plan, you know, with a different type of identity that they had rather than the one they projected right onto that baby. And so um, women feel a deep loss of community, a deep often and, 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 you know, obviously there's financial concerns involved and they feel regret for maybe not making a different decision or maybe not doing a certain screening to find something out, you know? And so when, I mean, I try to have this conversation with all my clients during the pregnancy, you know, I, I share with them that there are effects from ultrasound, you know, and they can look at Jim West studies to look at the human studies that were done, um, you know, with extent. We'll put a link to that. That's a great book for people to know yes. about. 50 yeah, and studies. so knowing that, will you get less ultrasounds? Will you get none? Will you get more? You know, will you only do the genetic screening? And if you do the genetic screening, you know, what's what's the intention behind it? Would you ever abort uh, if you got information from that genetic screening? You know, if you wouldn't, then what's the point of getting the genetic? You know, so like we and have these the conversations, <laughs> and I think that there are not enough. Um, and this is not medical advice. This is just like, I just like to give people things to think about. <laughs> like, I just like to ask questions. And that's how people do this self-inquiry is by me just asking questions. And I always say, you want to know as, as your doula, do you want me to tell you or as a mom or as a woman, like there's three options. I could give you my different perspectives from those three roles. And so I always give them the three and they're always different answers, you know? And so and so, you know, when those conversations are not being had, women can end up in these situations where they haven't made peace with all possibilities. So if a woman is guided in pregnancy to make peace with all possibilities, we have less of this trauma happening where, you know, the baby does come out with certain conditions because of choices that were made in the pregnancy. She, she knew that that could happen, but nobody talks to her about that happening, you know, um, and sometimes she just completely rejects what the doctor says. And I say, well, go and get a second opinion. You know, they could be right. They could be wrong. Like I've had clients told that their baby had heart conditions and then they went and got a second opinion and they didn't see anything, you know? So it's like, 
you just um it's a tricky it's really is tricky waters though because i think that there is a grief and a loss of what they wanted that baby and that family to be like and sometimes their partners don't even know how to hold space for that there's sometimes there's shame especially yeah. you know, cross-culturally there's a lot of shame around you know children who require additional support and who will need lifelong care into adulthood you know and it's a lot for both parents and I've seen relationships end because of it, you know, where sometimes the man just wants to become a financial provider, but cannot emotionally or physically hold the space anymore. Yeah. So that is, that is not something I'm yeah. really qualified, I would say to, you know, to really support and, and educate on, but I have been a part of it and have always done my, my best. And I really just become a, a neutral third party because sometimes family does not step up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, something that, that just came to mind for me, I was recently in South Africa and, and uh, there's about 20 of us and we're in the villages learning from some uh, traditional healers, indigenous midwives, just kind of being present really. It's very, very hard to say I learned. It was more like, got flooded with an entire experience that is challenging to every one of my world beliefs. It's not like reading a book and understanding this, but there was a woman there um, in attendance, like one of the fellow travelers who had, um, her partner had suffered a loss at around 22 weeks. So pre-viable, the baby, you know, they, we do all of the things for what's still considered a, a sort of a peri-viable loss as opposed to like a third trimester loss, but there's an intact baby that is born and she hadn't yet fully processed that. And as she was sharing, you could tell she was kind of like sobbing mm -hmm. inward a little bit. And one of the other participants who had lost her own daughter, um, actually, uh, the woman who, who came to her, to her aid, her name is Shawnee and she had lost her daughter. Um, and uh, her daughter's story was featured in the film Aftershock. So if anybody out there hasn't seen Aftershock, it's actually quite, it's, it's quite a beautiful, challenging film. Um, and uh, it's, it's around the, the aftershock to fathers and families when women die in childbirth, specifically black women who are dying, of course, at a rate of two to three, what, what their female, their, their white counterparts are. But anyways, when Shawnee went to hold her, they, um, you could tell that this other woman, I'm not going to use her name just to respect her privacy, but she was kind of sobbing a little bit. And then Shawnee had said, you know, sometimes it's very, very hard to really let this out without some help. So we all on the count of three just started wailing. And it, after a couple rounds of that, this woman just released everything, like screaming, crying, sobbing, like it was all out there. And, and it kind of occurs to me that especially for us men actually, but, but also for women, that this is one of those spaces, like expressing yourself, being vulnerable, allowing yourself to feel anything nowadays, it almost seems like it's countercultural. Like, like, like you're, you're misbehaving if you cry in public or you're misbehaving if you make somebody else uncomfortable by sharing something yeah. painful to you. <laughs> and, and I, like I, it's, it's very challenging because it's like, who are you protecting? Like, do you think that this person isn't strong enough? In which case, <clears throat> I bet they would say that they're strong enough to, to handle you expressing how you're feeling. Um, we do it in our in most intimate relationships. We hold back because we think we're somehow protecting this other person based on some cultural, uh, 
I don't know, some sort of cultural narrative that says it's not okay to show any emotion in our society. This is not, you know, around the world. But um, anyways, that that's something that came up. I mean, um, yeah. And I don't know, you probably want to say I something I do. About I mean, that. that's really <laughs> such a striking story because what it reminds me of is I have this mini course on, I call it containment, creating safety in the body. Um, and I studied, I've been studying um, BDSM, which is like a, a submissive dominant sadomasochistic philosophy. And, you know, people have their opinions about that because we generally speaking think it's about like, you know, whips and leather and it's not, it's a whole, um, there's a whole psychological realm that really invites a lot of healing, (laughs) um, you know, into our lives. And so in that study, I started to see that there was this concept of containment where we're always looking to find where we're being contained. And as a child, your caregivers are that containment. As a child, you're meant to be this kind of body of water and your parents are meant to be your riverbanks, right? Like the what's holding the water together, that container. And, and so when a parent has not mastered what it is to hold discomfort in the body, right, without dysregulating, there is no way they're going to be able to witness their child in a dysregulated state. So what they do, they give them a pacifier. They tell them to be quiet. Hmm. They tell them to go to their room and that when they're done being dysregulated, they can come out and participate in the family again. Um, They give them a screen. Uh, They give them food, a snack, right? And so this is how parents who are unable to offer themselves containment in their own body um, deal with children. So children learn when I'm emotional, when I express, when I have these big sensations, there's nowhere safe to offload it. There is no one containing me. So what's better to do? I don't want to lose connection. I don't want to go to my room. I don't want to be stuffed with a pacifier. I don't want to go on the screen and disassociate. So I'm just going to not say anything. And so in these moments where we need to grieve, Mm. right? Like you had this group grief session which sounds so amazing like she that she was just given permission right yeah exactly it it sounds so simple but it's actually so hard i think for us um, to accept to accept the permission actually for your whole life in order to survive and maintain connection you did not have permission to express right and i'm sure it's even more intense for for boys Mm. You know, it's expected that girl, girls will be emotional, but yeah. the way it's categorized is so dramatic. She's such a diva, right? Mm. So it's like, yeah, I can express, but then I'm being labeled as like high maintenance or a diva, which has its own negative connotations. Why can't I just express and it's just okay, you know? And then, of course, there's nuances where children can manipulate with their emotions. They learn to do that because they feel unsatisfied and unheld in other ways. So they start to manipulate. The only way I can get attention from mom and dad is if they save me, if I have a crisis. And then what do they learn growing up? The only way that I can be loved or taken care of is if I have crisis. So I always manifest crises so that I have connection with the people around me. I feel like I kind of do that myself it's it's almost the like uh like how was work today oh it's terrible my wife at some point had to tell me when i was in residency i mean i was in la in residency in a very hard program but she was like you know you don't always have to say like 
ugh, work. She's like, sometimes you're pretty excited. Why don't you ever share that? And I'm like, fuck, I don't, I don't know. I, I guess I expect to not come into a circle where everybody else is doing this conditioned thing where we'd say work, am I right? And like for me to walk in and be like, I love work today. It, it's these are so simple these little things but they accumulate and they they barricade us from actual connection to ourselves right, and why people. do we shame so, why do we feel shame when um, we don't have problems is it like oh <laughs> it's like right. oh that other person's life is hard i can't say that i just got a raise or i can't say that i just made extra money or i can't say that i can't celebrate because it it will make the people around me feel bad so again there's caretaking there if i always have a bad day then other people won't feel shitty about their own lives you know so where did that come from right right yeah not like my wife and i not not being able to get pregnant it was like we just kept getting pregnant and our friends are struggling spending money and doing all this so let's just not talk about it because it might make them feel bad our births 90 minutes of labor with a baby sleeping on our chest in our bedroom afterwards uh, a lot of people didn't have it that easy. So maybe we should like not talk about how great our birth was. Like it, this is like psychopathy. Like this is a real pathology in our societies. So um, whether you're on the good end or the bad end of, of uh, the spectrum on any particular thing happening to you, not being able or willing to be vulnerable and expressive is not allowing you to clear through this, to walk through the, the hellscape that is the oh, grief journey, yeah, and it is a right? Hellscape. And yeah, you uh, you said you mentioned earlier. I, this is one final thing I want to touch on. You mentioned earlier that you were raised in a Jewish household, but you recently accepted Islam and converted. I, I, I yeah. mean, is converted the right word? And well, so how does that play now into everything we've been talking about? One of the biggest, I would say, lessons or integrations that I've made over the last two and a half years since I've been on this journey of discovery is the concept of surrender. And it was really so closely paired with my um, study of BDSM and understanding um, what it is to be contained by a greater force that I cannot understand and I cannot quantify, right? And what does it mean to be in that state of trust? And how does that change the way that I move through the world, right? And how does it change my participation in my story? And, um, and in my work, it's really impacted the way that I can hold the space for women, right? And I invite them to look at surrender differently. I invite them to look at what they're resisting, you know, and ultimately like, you know, it starts to come out. Like there is this resistance to patriarchy. There is this resistance to the possibility that they are not in control of everything. Right. And so they're asked to question, you know, how they've been using control again as a survival mechanism in the same way that I've always used it myself. Right. I've always used control of those around me in relationship. Um, You know, I'm very meticulous with my, you know, the way I keep my space and the way that I work and I'm always on time and I, you know, I punctuality. There's so many things that I did that I thought were virtues, but really they were just a way to secure my safety. And so with this study, I just began to see that, like, you know, putting my head on the ground and prostrating, right? When I do that energetically, like, I'm done. I I can't be in control anymore, 
right? So for me, it was really my own, my own practice of coming down to my knees, putting my head on the ground and <laughs> literally, but also figuratively in so many ways um, and seeing what was there on the other side. And so that can be done with any, you know, framework of religion. It's, there is no right framework. There's just the one that finds us for whatever reason that it finds us. And um, yeah. And you said Islam translates to surrender. The, the, is that is, right? the, this or... is the the one of the tenets of Islam, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I see. I and see what you're so saying. Okay. It's we're asked to do that constantly. We're asked to do that constantly, even in the midst of pain and loss. There is always reward, and I believe that. Right. That is how I've been doing this work, even before I discovered that concept within this framework. So I'm always like spinning the SHIT into gold, always. Like there's no other option. The other option is just being stagnant in the water. So alchemy is at the basis of how I'm walking through this lifetime. And so, you know, that for me is what, what mm. Islam is actually talking about um, is alchemy. Um, and I don't think people spend, you know, and enough time <laughs> really like, um, relishing in that, you know, and really seeing it for what it is yeah. because there are so many, um, things coming at us all the time. There are so many concepts being force fed to us by, you know, media, Hollywood, um, you know, word of mouth that we miss the beauty of, you know, Judaism of, of Islam, of Christianity. I mean, we miss what's really going on, what's really being taught because we, we really like to stay at a surface level and we like to believe what, you know, people want us to believe. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, you know, given what's happening in, in Gaza right now, is there something, is there a resource you could send people to so they can better understand Islam? I mean, if that wasn't enough, beautiful language, is there, I know this sounds like a strange ask, but I feel like people are just not educated about virtually anything anymore. And they just go with the Twitter headlines and all that. And they get caught up in the frenzy without maybe really trying to appreciate some of the rich traditions of, of either um, the Israelis or the Palestine, you know, Palestinians. Um, yeah. Is there like a good resource, like a YouTube video <laughs> or something? People have such short attention spans. So I don't want to say like, go and read this 500 you know, page anthology, but what would you recommend if somebody was like, wow, that's really interesting. I want to learn more about Islam. You know, I would actually like, I don't have a YouTube video, um, but I do have this book, which is what changed my mind five years ago. Um, How did you pull that book out of that stack of books without it toppling? <laughs> you're a warlock. <laughs> Guys, if you're not, if you're listening, Ayla has a book of like at least 40, 50 books stacked behind her. She reached backward and haphazardly pulled a book from the center like you would pull a tablecloth off of a full table setting and the stack didn't even budge. What is going on over I used to go to circus area? camp as a kid, so there you go. No, um, that's actually true. But <laughs> this book, um, Secrets of Divine Love by A. Helwa. So this is what um, changed my mind, actually, um, about Islam. And um, as far as a YouTube video goes, I don't have one, but I think it's important for people to note the history of that region. And a lot of people don't. 
right? A lot of people don't understand that yeah. the people that lived in Palestine were Jewish <laughs> and they converted to Islam. And yeah. um, people don't know the story of Hagar and they don't know how um, basically the the Arabs deviated from Abraham. Like there's there's a really just, there's just a lack of understanding because we don't teach any of this in schools, you know, because we say we don't want to touch religion, right. but it's actually important um, culturally, you know, to understand how these Abrahamic religions started. And they really are like, it's the foundation of our constitution yeah. in America to understand this. So, um, you know, I think that there's just a lot of resistance um, because people feel like it's a way to brainwash the masses and this is how we've controlled everyone. And, you know, yes, it's true. There's like a lot of stuff that has gone down a lot. And we look at the entire continent of, you know, Central and South America and like the rape and the abuse and like, yes, you know, however, um, if we want to build empathy, which is what, you know, we're lacking collectively, like on the whole, really understanding what empathy is um, and seeing that two different people can have completely different experiences and someone next to you is having a completely different experience and it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with you, but we're so right. egocentric that we want to believe the way someone's eyes move <laughs> has everything to do with us and it's a reflection of our worth and it's a reflection of our, you know, yeah. how they perceive us, you know? And so there's this unbraiding that can also happen as far as like the world does not um, revolve around you and someone is having an independent experience and how do you build empathy and how you, how do you get out of the story? If you really believe, like, it's so funny cause I, I, I'm going to go into a mini tangent for a second, but it's like so many truthers, right? Um, that I know are people in the wellness community who woke up in the last three years or they're completely victim to this whole narrative that's happening right now on the news. I know. And I'm it's like, okay, shame. so yeah. you thought all this was orchestrated, but you can't see how this is, you know? Um, but right now I think there is an right. invitation. I think it's actually like happening on purpose. Everything is happening on purpose all the time. Um, but the, the bigger invitation here is to, to build that empathy and to reconcile the two conflicts within each of us. Cause we are all in conflict. Again, this goes back to our whole conversation today. Like what parts are you self betraying? Where are you self betraying? Where are your multiple identities? Where have you not reconciled your needs? You know, this, this conflict is just a bigger macro version of this inner conflict we're having. So focus on that. There is no like, there is nothing to be done there. There's nothing you can do. No one cares about your opinion. No one cares what you think about the conflict. Nobody wants to know what you have to say on Instagram. Nobody. And so heal this. And as this comes to heal, that is going to yeah. resolve itself. You know, but if you really want to get involved, understand that Judaism is based in love. Islam is based in love. Those are the core tenets of those two religious practices and frameworks and understand the history of the region and understand that there are a lot of political and financial interests at play that are benefiting from this. There is a long game here and it has nothing yeah. to do with God and different gods. Which there are no different gods, but yeah. 
It's just a it's just a really really nice sticky topic that for thousands of years we've been we've we've uh, acknowledged that we're willing to go to war over this. So people just turn on the war machine when, and bring religion into it, and we all start dividing ourselves again. And then we, without understanding even what we're talking about, and then they have their way and and whatever you know the aftermath is they have their way in reorganizing things a little bit and then the next time they need to reorganize something they turn us against each other with religion again it's like nobody who's actually who actually um believes in something greater than themselves could honestly think that going to war and killing a bunch of people Absolutely. is the way forward like and, it's and it, this is it's whether you're Islamic or Christian or and whatever. And it's just, a, so, this is just yeah. a mirror, right? This is just a mirror of what's going on within yeah. you. You know, if you're feeling polarized, if you can look at this and not feel polarized, then you're doing the work, you know? And if you feel polarized yeah. or something that just, it's an invitation to look within you, but there is nothing that can, that you can do, you know? And of course there is like, everyday action, you yeah. know, raising money and things like that. But that's not understanding what this is. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's just not actually understanding what this is. And if you could get behind how yeah. other things are orchestrated and fabricated and how we're being controlled, I invite you to, to look at this um, in the same way. Ayla, mm. <laughs> where can people work with you? I, I've got a little, uh, we've got a holistic 15 as a code. People can get off a 15% uh, 15% off a one-on-one session with you at AylaCuenca.com. We'll put the link in the podcast description. What other offerings do you have that you want people to know about? Yeah, where you can, can also go to uncoveringbirth.com. That's where we have some of our mini courses and, you know, we have the the containment and finding safety in the body course. We have a, a what I call the red pill breastfeeding course. <laughs> it's really a not going to find anything else um, like it. It's really based in more traditional anthropological concepts. So if you want to try to return to that, we have that course too. And, um, and then we also have a foundations birth course. And I think I told you um, that I trained with the Bradley method. And so I really, really love a lot of those concepts. And so this course is really about bringing um, the partner into the process and it's all about informed consent and, understanding the placenta, understanding um, choices with vaccines and newborn procedures a little more deeply. And so we kind of go, go deep into all that. So it's a bunch of things in there for everybody. <laughs> Why was the Bradley method so attractive to um, you? I loved that Dr. Bradley was an MD who grew up on a farm and watched birth happen with animals. And when he got, you know, he was, that's what he said. He's like, I grew up watching animals give birth. So when I got to this hospital, I couldn't understand why women were having these outcomes. Like I couldn't understand why they weren't just birthing like the way that I had watched birth unfold. So he quickly left the system and started branching out and he opened a birth center and he started noticing that women were able to do this without these interventions at a time when we had just kind of like the pendulum swung so deeply into medicated birth, uh, you know, in this, what he called the knock them out, drag them out era. So it's like between the 1940s and the 1980s, like we went kind of deep into medicalized birth. And so it was radical at the time. And I loved that he was radical and willing to be different, you know, and he was a very, you know, very godly man. Yeah. He was very uh, Christian. And, and I really appreciated that he would always weave that into his discussions about medicine. And he didn't keep the two 
really separate. You know, he, he brought faith and trust and surrender into his, into his work. And he simplified birth for me, you know? Yeah. It doesn't have to be so complicated. You know, when I, when you look into some of these technologies, it's like the beauty of, of even like hypnobirthing is, is, um, is that there's no nothing like magical here. You actually have all the magic. You just need to, we need to hone that magic in order to, to really um, fully express yourself through this process um, as opposed to looking outward for the answers, you're looking inward. Like it sounds so simple and it doesn't require special technology or even a lot of training. It's just like practicing um, honoring who you are and what's coming up for you on the inside. I feel like the Bradley method kind of, kind of plays into that as well, but like none of these technologies are like even what you do or what I do. It's like the stuff that's most impactful is, is things that I could, that, that are like going to cost you yeah, no it's money. It's really just a lot of qu- like just asking questions. <laughs> yeah. 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 And being okay with whatever answer comes right, up. That's right. Right. So yeah, it, it can feel it can feel intense and challenging simply because control um isn't really a part of this this equation. You know. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Ayla, thank you. Thank you for coming and spending some time this morning and love on your little your little yes, daughter. Yes. Daughter, right? You have a daughter. Serafina. Yeah. Love on her for me and um enjoy the sunshine in Miami. It's probably as cold as it's going to get. It's probably 65. It's like 72, <laughs> but it's been raining and windy. Oh, freezing <laughs> Yeah, it's cold. been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'll talk to well, you soon. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Holistic OBGYN podcast. It is such a great pleasure to be able to put on this show for you every couple of weeks. If you want to find me, my name is Nathan Riley. Instagram is a great way to reach out, Nathan Riley OBGYN. My practice is Beloved Holistics, and you can find that at BelovedHolistics.com. I have a couple programs out there. Born Free Method is my, (laughs) it's easily the most comprehensive postpartum pregnancy, childbirth, fertility program out there. That is available in a giant bundle at bornfreemethod.com. It was co-created with um, my best friend and radical birth keeper, classical midwife, Sarah Rosser, who did all of her training, apprenticeship, and most of her career was um, uh, lived out on the farm in Tennessee. That's, that's right, Ina May's farm, the spiritual midwifery farm. I also have a program with Mimi Linquist called Clear and Free. It's your holistic approach to um, clearing persistent HPV. We get into a variety of lifestyle modifications. We demystify the cervical cancer screening process, go over all of the interventions, and help you really reclaim your health in a variety of ways, from nervous system to physical to uh, supplementing with immune intel, AHCC, etc. Um, I also have a conference I host every single year. That's the Born Free Twins Breach Conference. You can find that at bornfreetwinsbreach.com. And um, if you need to see me for private consultation, if you have private questions, whatever, you can uh, reach out through belovedholistics.com. It is uh, with with great pleasure that I bring this show to you. So if anything here touched you, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Share it with your friends. 
doing those two things alone it really, really matters. We're also on YouTube, um, although occasionally we will have to upload uh, the video versions of um, these interviews onto Rumble due to the sort of censorship that has taken over the search engines like YouTube. Um, but go there, subscribe, follow along. You can actually see in, in some of the interviews, there's a lot of visual aids and whatnot that can be very, very helpful to you to see. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining me, really, truly, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for giving me an hour of your time. And um, do no harm, take no shit, and I will see you on the other side. Oh, and if you're looking for my other podcast, that's the Obi Gyno Wino. It's been rebooted since um, all of the practice guidelines and committee opinions, or many of them, have been updated. So I started to re decided to reboot that, and you can find that at on all of your podcast platforms at Obi Gyno Wino. And the same same um, uh, recommendations apply there. If something touches you there, if you think somebody could benefit, it is super helpful if you're studying for your OBGYN boards or your midwifery training or you're a doula and you just want to know more, go there, go there. That's a far more clinically, uh, directed, um, podcast. So I'm Nathan Riley. Thank you for tuning in and I'll see you next time on the holistic OBGYN podcast. Bye-bye.